If you'd grab your Bibles and open them up this morning to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, we are going to continue our look at this series of woes that Jesus pronounced against the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, and we are going to look at verses 23 and 24 this morning. Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Once again, we are met with that phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It can be a shock to the system for many when they hear such judgmental and denunciatory and condemning words from the lips of Christ himself. After all, if we listen to and believe what many say about Jesus today, how many in the world and many in the modern church present Jesus to us today as a misty-eyed, syrupy-speaking man with a sugar-coated sentiment, as one who always accepts everyone regardless of the state of their heart, regardless of how they live their lives, regardless of whether they even know him at all or not. Jesus, many say, simply loves everyone no matter what, all the time. And one of the ways that he reveals his mushy and squishy and undefined love is by never, ever judging, denouncing, or condemning anyone. This is the Jesus of those who say things like, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. The Jesus of those who want to live their own lives on their own terms, but they also want to add a sprinkle of the Jesus of their own making in, into their own lives for good measure. However, when you come to these, this chapter, Matthew 23, and you see this series of seven woes that Jesus pronounces, know this, they serve a purpose. These woes serve a meaningful purpose. They are strong, they are judgmental, and they are condemning in tone for a reason. Because spiritual hypocrisy of the sort that was practiced by the scribes and Pharisees in this day, along with the spiritual but not religious sort of spiritual hypocrisy practiced in our own day, all of these find themselves or found themselves, even though they may not know it, deceived by the motions of their own wicked hearts and in danger of eternal wrath as a result. 
When souls hang in the balance, when that part of you that lives on forever is at risk of descending into eternal torment and people are too apathetic to see it, sometimes the only way to rattle the listener to get their attention, to make them stop and think is to cry out in the most clear and spiritually violent of terms, woe to you, scribe and Pharisee, hypocrite. This is what God did in the Old Testament as He sent prophet after prophet to Israel over and over again to wake them, to stun them out of their spiritual apathy and their hypocrisy. God sent men like Amos, who cried out in Judah, I, the Lord says, I am about to send fire on Judah and devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Strong words. And Amos speaks of God in Amos 3.8 as the roaring lion, saying, the lion has roared, and who will not fear? Now I have heard, I've never actually heard a lion roar, but I've gone to the Kilman Zoo and the different zoos around, and I have waited with eager anticipation and hope that at some point in my walk around these, that I would hear a lion actually roar. Because I have heard that when a lion roars, the sound of its roar sends shockwaves and terror among, um, to all those who hear it. The roar of a lion jolts you inside and unnerves you mentally as it shakes you from the inside out. I've thought to myself, what, I don't know what the movie, the, the movie, you know the one with the lion that roars at the beginning if you're going to watch a movie? MGM? MGM. You remember that? It's got the lion there. I've always thought, I'd love to turn it up as loud as I can get it with my surround sound and just see if it could, if it could measure up. But I don't think it would. I've heard that the roar of a lion is unlike any other sound that we might experience on earth. The roar of a lion is so powerful, so loud, so jarring, that animals and humans can hear it for five miles. And in the old days, centuries ago, the prophets, or millennia ago, the prophets would roar like lions in Israel, seeking to rattle and to shake and to unnerve and to agitate the people. And even centuries ago, the Christian leaders of those days, the pastors of those days, would appeal to the spiritual hypocrites in ways that sounded so much like the prophets of old. Over this past week, I've been reading one work by, a, by an old pastor named George Swinnick. And listen to this. I want you to hear how these pastors would exhort and explain the roar of the Lord to those who were gathered to listen but were spiritually hypocritical and spiritually apathetic. Listen to these types of words. Quote, Hearer, if thou art newborn, put this case to yourself and ask your soul what it will do in such an hour when the grave shall come with its habeas corpus, meaning the command for you to appear before the judge in court. When your soul shall leave the dwelling that is your body and pass naked without any of its comforts into a far country where devils and damned spirits are the inhabitants, where screeching and yelling and howling is the language, where fire and brimstone is the meat and a cup of pure wrath without the least mixture is the drink, where weeping and wailing is their calling, where a killing death is all of their life. Assure thyself 
If thou diest unsanctified, thou wilt find it far worse than all of this. End quote. Hear the preaching of those men who spoke like a roaring lion. The situation for the hypocrite truly is a dire one. And the eternal realities described by Swinnick is closer to every single one of us than we think they are. And for this reason, Jesus, as he did through the Old Testament prophets, continues here in our text to roar like a lion against the hypocrites and the spiritually apathetic. To all who pretend and all who act like they belong to him, but whose hearts are actually far from him. See, the Lord has always and persistently unleashed furious rebukes and terrifying pronouncements of judgment to those who claim his name, who profess him with their lips, but do not actually care to live for him, to worship him, or to obey him. For the scribes and the Pharisees, this took the form of more external religious practice, and they would do everything to look spiritual and to look religious without actually loving the Lord. And we're going to look at this this morning as we progress, but in our day, it seems that more people desire, instead of the old Pharisaical way of doing it, they desire some connection with the Lord with what they term the spiritual. I hear it all the time. I'm a spiritual person. When someone says that to you, what do you think? When someone says, you know, I'm a spiritual person. When they say it to me, I immediately think, this is somebody who wants the blessings of being connected with the Lord without that connection actually impacting or affecting their life in any way. They don't want to give up any sinful practices. They don't want to develop any godly disciplines, any godly character. They simply want to live life as they choose, live life as they please, without taking seriously any of the demands of the Lord for holiness of life, without any of the obedience to the Lord of, for a, of a heart that is exploding with love for Him. This is the modern sort of hypocrite the one who manufactures for themselves what can only be described as a designer God, a God of their own imagination. Sure, there are a few, pick, few hand-picked scriptural truths that are applied to this God of their own crafting. I mean, obviously, He is love, of course, right? But then also added to this designer God are a number of attributes that scripture contradicts. He doesn't judge anyone. The God I serve doesn't judge anyone. He doesn't care what we do in life so long as it makes us happy, gives us a sense of fulfillment, and proves us to be authentic. He accepts us for who we are and is pleased to simply leave us that way while raining down blessings from heaven upon us because we are just so lovable. Have you noticed that humanity, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's the scribes and the Pharisees, whether it's the spiritual but not religious types, anytime we create a God in our own image, anytime we create a designer God, that God tends to look like, act like, and permit whatever it is that we, the creator of this phony, non-existent God, like and permit. You ever notice how they very much look like us? 
You ever notice that the gods of our own imaginations always seem to love whatever we love and applaud whatever we applaud and hate whatever we hate? This is not Yahweh, the God who exists. This is the God that we, in, many, in, our, in our society, design to fool and to deceive our hearts in our own sin. The Bible calls such a practice because it's been happening since the fall, this practice of manufacturing gods in our own image. The Bible calls this practice idolatry. This is the way of those who, as again, the pastor George Swinnick put it, live with a desperate madness to gratify their brutish, savage, rowdy, animalistic flesh, and in so doing, basely neglect their own soul. Far too many would rather believe in a pseudo-Jesus of their creation who permits them to follow the, the passions of their flesh, to walk in the paths of their sinful wickedness, rather than know Jesus as He is as he has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. And as a result, they refuse to know Christ, to believe in Christ, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ. And this is all, once again, last time I'll quote him, I promise, once again summed up well by George Swinnick. As you can tell, I've been reading this book this week. Where he wrote this, Should you reject Christ, and I'll add, in favor of your supposed imaginary God. O oh, listener, this will be your case if you are unsanctified at death. When you lay upon your deathbed and you are going out of the world, you may take leave of your friends, your estate, your honor, and your delights in this sort of language. Farewell, my dear wife, children, and all my friends. Farewell forever. I am going where lovers and friends will be put far from me. I will never, never have any friends anymore. But I will remain friendless for all eternity. Farewell to my house and my land and my silver and my gold. Farewell forever. I shall from here and forward and forever be a beggar. And though I beg for but one drop of water to cool my tongue... When this whole body shall be in unquenchable flames, I will be everlastingly denied. Farewell to my honors and my delights. Farewell forever. I shall never be more, more be respected or comforted. Confusion of face and ceaseless pains are to be my endless and unchangeable portion. End quote. And so if this, if this is the case for everyone who rejects Christ... If this is the case for everyone who is led away from Christ by the passions of their own flesh, if this is the case for everybody who is led astray by the example and the instruction of false teachers, spiritually apathetic men, hypocrites, who set themselves up as spiritual authorities, then the command of our Lord and the woes that are pronounced in this text, the roaring of the lion is actually one of the most gracious things our Lord does for us. The apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians church in the to the Ephesian church roars like a lion in gracious and merciful exhortation and calls upon everyone, called upon everyone in the Ephesian church and calls upon every single one of us in the church today to as he says in Ephesians 5:11 take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
To do so is actually to participate and perform a most merciful and compassionate and wonderful deed, even though it doesn't feel like it, does it? When you are the one who must take no part and expose, that doesn't feel nice. When you are the one who is having your darkness exposed, that doesn't feel nice. And yet, it is a merciful, compassionate, and wonderful deed to us whose very souls hang in the balance. This is a deed that is performed out of love by one Christian to another. It is a deed that seeks to lift souls out from darkness and into Christ's marvelous light. Take no part, says Paul, calling on us who profess the Lord Jesus Christ to avoid any and all connection with, association with, and cooperation in the unfruitful works of darkness, he said. Unfruitful unfruitful works of darkness being those works that do not benefit you as you function and live as a child of Christ in the world. Unfruitful works of darkness are those works that do not bear the fruit of righteousness in and of themselves, nor do they help you and I bear fruit in keeping with repentance in our lives. They are, as Paul says, works of darkness. As in they belong to the sphere, they belong to the realm that is dominated and characterized by evil and by sin and by willful transgression and ignorance of God's designs and by rebellion against His revealed will. Living in and practicing these unfruitful works of darkness will only lead every single one of us who does them into gloom and despair and sadness and downheartedness, both in this life and maybe even into the next. For this reason, because God loves the world, because we love one another, because we love lost sinners, God has commissioned us, He has commissioned you, His child. He has commissioned us, His children, to take no part in these destructive, deadly life-shattering, soul-sabotaging deeds, but instead he calls on us to expose them. This word speaks to the necessity of bringing the unfruitful works that are committed by those who profess to serve and love and speak for and instruct in the ways of the Lord, to bring them up out from the darkness and into the light. It is a call for us to bring these unfruitful works that the professing Christian and the non-Christian would love to keep hidden, would love to keep in the darkness rather than having them exposed to the light, rather than having them exposed to the lights, to the eyes of others. And we do this, you do this, I do this, we do this for the sake of souls, for the sake of everyone who is influenced by them. And he says, to expose them means to sternly admonish, to convict, to rebuke, to uncover, to lay the dark deeds bare, to leave those dark deeds unprotected, open to censure, and if need be, discipline, so that the name of the Lord is not defamed and proclaimed or uh, profaned by the wicked deeds, and so that you and I might live in the light rather than in the darkness. For many, though, this gracious command of the Lord feels like anything but gracious, right? Exposing the darkness of others and having our own fruitless and dark deeds exposed is something we tend to avoid at all costs. It's too costly to expose other people's deeds and it's too shameful to have our deeds exposed. 
We don't want anyone to know what's going on in the deep recesses of our own soul. We don't want anyone to know our private sins, those sins that we conceal from everyone else's sight, the acts, the thoughts, the undertakings that we hide from everyone else, and so we walk around like abject hypocrites. And we put on, as the scribes and Pharisees did, a great external show. You and I, we might be hypocrites in the dark, and we come to church services. And as Pastor J.C. Ryle says, we veil our unfruitful works of darkness under a thin layer of courtesy, politeness, good manners, and outward decorum. We're masters at maintaining surface-level relationships for fear that if somebody gets too close to us, they might see who we really are. They might find out our hidden deeds, our deeds, our unfruitful works that are committed in the darkness. They might see our numerous, this is true for every one of us, our numerous character flaws. You ever sit back and wonder, why do we do this to ourselves? Know this, that if you know your own heart well, you know everybody's heart well. The times when people say to me, that sermon was really convicting, Pastor, are the times when all I did was apply Scripture to my own heart. If you know your own heart, you know the common state of everyone. We are all in the same boat, which is why we need each other so much. Again, hear J.C. Ryle. Know how true it is that even the holiest saint is in himself a miserable sinner and a debtor to mercy and grace to the very last moment of their existence. Think about the holiest person you can think of, the one who has their life, at least it seems like, it's fully and completely and totally together. Even them, miserable sinner, debtor to grace, to the very last moment of his life, as are you and as, a, as is myself. And when we hide those deeds of darkness, we are carbon copies of the scribes and the Pharisees, who in their own day had done a masterful job of doing that very thing, presenting themselves to the crowds as holy and pious as those who obeyed the Mosaic law, who were God-honoring men in the public eye, but their externals didn't fool Jesus just as our externals don't fool Jesus. They could not disguise or mask their darkened hearts from Christ. And so while they position themselves as ones for Israel to observe and to study and to listen to, should an Israelite desire to live a godly life, the reality for the average Israelite, though they did not know it, was this, that the men they looked to, the scribes and the Pharisees that they sought to imitate, thinking that this is how the Lord wanted them to live, were complete, total hypocrites. And not accidental hypocrites like we all are, but hypocrites in the worst sense of the word. And they were this sort of hypocrite through and through and through. Jesus has already noted this twice in Matthew 23. In verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, verse 16 or verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And now again in verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
And in there, you see Jesus in verse 16 and 19 also interjects, you blind guides, you blind leaders. As in, they have no clue where they're going. They themselves are in the dark. And so as blind, they lead everyone else into the very same hole and pit that they themselves fall into. And so this generation of scribes and Pharisees, according to Jesus, who continually uses this word hypocrite to describe them, they were pretenders, they were fakers, they were counterfeits that were more interested in seeking their own gain, in seeking their own platform, in seeking their own reputations, in hiding from sight their sins that need to be confessed and forgiven than they were helping Israel to love and to serve and to honor the Lord with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, and with all of their strength. And so as we go back, you see in this string of seven condemnations, Jesus has already directed at the scribes and Pharisees, he's already exposed to sight the unfruitful works of, verse 13, being leaders who shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces because they would neither enter the kingdom themselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Meaning, the leadership of these hypocrites over the nation was such that by their example, instead of conducting and ushering people into the presence of our glorious Lord, they actively obstructed and barricaded their sight, the people's sight of an entry into the kingdom of heaven. And they did this by their knowing, willful persistence in hypocrisy. Jesus continued exposing their darkness again in verse 15. This time for their dedication to making a single proselyte. But when that person becomes a proselyte, they, the scribes and Pharisees, make him, that proselyte or that convert, twice as much a child of hell as themselves. See, Jesus here denounced the practice of converting people, but converting them not to true faith in the Lord, not to wholehearted devotion to the God of Israel, but to their, converting them to their own particular brand of external rule following, following, to their own particular brand of hypocrisy. And, in, and thirdly, in chapter, verses 16 to 22, Jesus exposed and then reprimanded these same scribes and Pharisees for their creation of, we looked at it last week, a complex, deceptive, and duplicitous system of loopholes, evasions, and escape clauses in the area of oaths, promises, and commitments to fulfilling their word. They created this system to look good to everybody when they actually made the oath. I commit to fulfilling this oath. And everybody would be like, wow, what an oath. Oh, that's amazing. Look at these guys. They're so spiritual. Look at, to their very hurt, they have made this promise. But then if the oath was too much, if it was too costly, if it was too difficult, they could look back on their exact words and say to the person to whom they had made that oath in public, um, there was a loophole right here. I don't have to fulfill it. Go on your way. But they would do that in private so that nobody could see that, right? They established a setup that legitimized lying, that legitimized reneging on their word with no consequence, and what's worse, allowed them to feel justified, to feel righteous in their lying, and to present the avoidance of their commitments to the crowds in Israel when they were challenged on them as a God-honoring practice. They'd taken evil and convinced themselves that it was good. So those are the three that Jesus has brought to this point. The three roaring woes that he has pronounced against them, but Jesus is not done. 
He continues his series of woes. He continues this series of condemnations. And he now proceeds to reprimand these scribes and Pharisees in the hearing of the crowds for their, look at verse 24, for their straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, how did they accomplish this? How did they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel? Look again at the words in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now you might think, well, that's a great thing to do. And you're right. Tithing is good. There's absolutely nothing wrong with devoting and dedicating a portion of all you possess, a portion of everything you accumulate, a portion of all of your resources to the Lord who has provided them to you who has given them to you. It is, in fact, the most excellent and wonderful practice if, if it is done with a heart that is filled with praise to, love for, gratitude to the Lord for His excellent and generous and treasured mercies that He has dispensed upon you. If you love the Lord and, an, and out of that love you just desire to give to Him, amen, go for it, do it as much as you want. But, as it tended to be with the scribes and Pharisees of Christ's day, they gave carefully and with painstaking exactness. They measured out a tenth of everything they possessed right down to the spices on their spice racks, right down to their mint and their dill and their cumin. Now, why is this a problem? If you actually study the law of God in Deuteronomy, listen to what God commanded the Israelites. Deuteronomy 14, 22-23. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, this is before Israelites in the land, he will choose the tabernacle and the temple, or the temple to be the place in the future. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always." You see what the Lord called for in his tithes from the field. The tithes of the field are defined by Deuteronomy as grain, oil, and wine. Of these three things, the Lord commanded Israel to give a tenth. Now, enter the Pharisees millennia later, for whom the tithing of grain, oil, and wine simply wasn't enough to distinguish themselves from the average ordinary Israelite who was also giving these things. So they thought it best to differentiate themselves by adding to what the Lord had said to tithe, by adding dill, mint, and cumin to the list as well. And as they did, they created yet another burden, another weight, another shortcoming to lay upon the shoulder of the common Hebrew family. But did the scribes and the Pharisees care about any of that? No. Did they care about the extra burdens that they placed upon the average Israelite as they set up their little tables and measured out their dill and their cumin and their mint within eyesight of everybody, the average Israelite who was walking around? No. In fact, they would roll their eyes at the lesser people, pronounce all sorts of judgments and condemnations among themselves against those who didn't have the same level of spiritual maturity that they did. 
Jesus had already said about these men, they tie up heavy burdens, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. They tie up heavy burdens, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger, and they do all their deeds to be seen by others. So what they cared about was the increase of their own reputations, the increase of their own influence among the crowds. And so they performed these deeds over and above what God had actually commanded and then insulted those who couldn't live up to those burdensome additions. That was their way of differentiating themselves from the average Israelite. And what's more is that for the scribes and Pharisees, these over and aboves provided some sense of relief to their own conscience. Because they assumed that if I do these types of works, if I, if I read what God's Word says and then I go over it and above it and I do more, then I will secure the love and I will secure the favor and the affection of God. You can see this in the parable, actually, of, in Luke 18, when the Pharisee and the tax collector went up to the temple to pray. Listen, the Pharisee stood up and pointed out in his address, listen to the words, I give tithes, Luke 18, 12. I give tithes of all I get. Meaning, Lord, I don't just give to you the bare basics and necessities of what you have commanded us in the law. I go above and beyond I scour my house and bring out every single package on my spice rack and I, weigh, I also weigh them out and give them to you. And this practice of tithing everything they possessed elicited in them a sense of superiority, a feeling of eminence. The Lord may have set His love and affection on Israel as a nation, they would say, but within that nation, we we, the scribes and the Pharisees, we are the preeminent ones. We are the ones that the Lord favors above all others. Why? Because of our meticulous and pious observances. Because we don't just do the bare minimum, but our dutiful service is such that we go above and beyond what is expected. So the problem isn't that they tithe of their dill and their mint and their cumin. The problem was that they did it to secure the favor of God. They did it to elevate themselves over other Israelites. They did it to boost themselves up, believing that by doing such things, they could obtain and warrant the affection of God. And last week, we learned that this is something that God hates. To think that you, for me to think that I could, by being good, make the Lord love us, is what Paul calls a different gospel. Meaning, it is a false gospel. It is not the gospel. In fact, Paul declares to anyone who proclaims such a gospel and to anyone who believes such a gospel, let him be accursed, or they are accursed. The biblical truth is this. You and I can never could never do enough to secure or to warrant or to deserve the love of God. You and I can never do enough to win His favor. And even the best of our deeds, even your above and beyonds, even your tithing of dill and mint and cumin, whatever that might look like in your life, it is as nothing in His sight if they are done with the intention of earning His love or increasing his satisfaction with you. In fact, they are worse than nothing. 
They are accursed sins. Scripture is clear. If you are saved this morning, or if you would be saved and forgiven by the Lord this morning, it's not the result of your good works. It's not the result of your going over and above or beyond what is expected. It is not your tithing of all you get, like the Pharisees would say. It is what the Apostle Paul declares in Ephesians 2. You have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man, no one may boast. In fact, before Paul had written these towering and monumental words, he had already made it clear. Listen to this in Ephesians 2, verses, verse 2 and 4 to 7. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? If you are saved this morning, if you are forgiven this morning, it is because God is gracious, not because you are good or worthy. It is because God is rich in mercy, not because you and I are full of righteous deeds. It is because God's love is great and He has showered it upon you, not because you are lovable, because he is compassionate and he is merciful to every sinner who calls out to him in faith. And why did God shower his love upon the Ephesian church? And why does God shower his love upon you if you call out to him in faith? So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness to you. He saved you to exalt his grace it's to show His kindness and to display His mercy, not so that any of us might elevate ourselves over above others, but that all of us might say, look to Him, that we might exalt Him for His glorious mercy and grace, not so that any of us could stand like the Pharisee and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. The scribes and the Pharisees, though, they couldn't, they wouldn't, they refused to grasp this all-important truth. And so they remained fixated on winning God's love by the performance of numerous, spirit, numerous external works. Again, in this case, the tithing of dill and mint and cumin. And what makes this worse is that their performances were simply a going through the motions, which again is condemned by the Lord throughout the Old Testament. The Lord sent prophets to Israel over and over and over again to warn them about going through the motions, about observing sacrifices and celebrating the festivals that had been commanded by the Lord without any true love for the Lord. Listen, to partake of these ceremonies, believing that by doing them paved the road to God's love, paved the road to salvation, actually angered God. The very deeds that the leaders in Israel thought inspired the favor of God upon them actually accomplished the very opposite and provoked His wrath against them. Same thing is for us. 
Hear, for example, the word of the Lord to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, a rebuke of those Israelites who went through the motions. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Did you hear all of the things that were mentioned in there? Sacrifices, incense, Sabbaths, appointed feasts. All of these things were actually commanded by the Lord. And yet here he makes it clear to the Israelites that were doing them, my soul hates this. Why? Because the Israelites of the day were wicked, disobedient, rebellious, and stiff-necked. But they still maintained those external observances while they were in their state of rebellion, while their hearts remained far from the Lord, while they were, ab while they were hypocrites. And they thought that by doing these things, that would be enough, that would be sufficient to appease the Lord. Jesus said that this was the case in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, when he looked at the Pharisees and said, You know, Isaiah prophesied well about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their, their heart is far from me. So instead of observing the commands out of love for and gratitude to the Lord who had delivered them out from slavery in Egypt, they lived as they pleased and they thought it enough to perform the works that God had given to them without any real love for Him. And now, over eight centuries later, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and reveals to them that the religious leaders in Israel were still the same as they were eight centuries earlier. They had not learned their lesson. For them, it was as though it, had, it, it, it is as it had been for the Israelites in Isaiah's day. Their religion was nothing more than a method by which to conceal their stony hearts from view. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't serve the Lord with joy and thanksgiving, but instead fixated on doing those things that separated them from the crowd, that made them stand out from the crowd and fooled themselves into thinking that was enough. And exhibit A is their hyper-focus on these small details while leaving out and forgetting and ignoring the weightier matters, meaning the heavier matters, the more important, the more crucial matters spoken of in the law. As Jesus continued in verse 24, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So there's a word play that's happening here in the Greek. This word weightier, it's the same word that's used way back in verse 4 of chapter 23. The scribes and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy or weighty burdens while themselves ignore, they ignore the truly heavy or weighty matters of the law. And when Jesus speaks about these heavy, weighty matters of the law, he doesn't speak of them as though they were onerous or burdensome. 
Because listen, the commands of Jesus Christ are not onerous, they're not burdensome. In fact, the, the commands of Christ are the pathway to our greater joy. Sure, they run contrary to the desires of our flesh, but our flesh, and we all know this, we all know in our lives that the lies of sin and the promises of sin always return unfulfilled. They always return void. But the promises of Christ remain. They always do what they promise. Our fleshly desires end up robbing us of the joy and happiness we seek, but the commandments of Christ, as the Apostle John wrote, his commandments are not burdensome. And as Jesus has already said in Matthew 11, verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the scribes were so hyper-focused on creating and then obeying these small details that they left out, they forgot about, they conveniently overlooked and ignored the more important matters of the law. Those things that the Lord called for from Israel over and over again, that he called for from his people throughout the Old Testament. For the scribes, it was easier to take part and practice the rituals of religion, to focus on the outward practices of religion, than it was to actually believe and be changed as a result. And isn't that the same for us? Can't we also get caught up in following the outward rituals and memorials, believing that somehow, some way, these inspire or increase God's love for us, God's acceptance of us? I mean, we gather to observe baptism and communion together. We gather every week to, uh, to celebrate the Lord and worship Him together on the Lord's Day. We'll pick up and we'll read our devotional magazines. We'll make every effort to follow our annual Bible reading plans. We'll speak kindly to one another and we'll do our best to act the part of the Christian. And all of these things ought to be practiced by us, by those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and who are who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them and is growing us up into the image and likeness of Christ. But we do these things because we love Christ. We do these things because we adore Christ. We cherish Christ and we treasure Christ. We grow internally as this Spirit produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. And we diligently fight against the sin in our lives the sins that are revealed in Scripture, uh, because we love Jesus. We wage this war not because it makes the Lord love us more, but because we love Him. We desire to please Him. We desire to be more like Him because He's amazing. But for these Pharisees, these men who are devoid of the Spirit of God, they just simply disregarded any mention or discussion about the deeper realities of God's law. You see, Jesus made it clear way back in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, that the scribes and Pharisees taught that the command, you shall not murder, only referred to the act of premeditated killing of another human being. Now, hopefully for most of us, I'd imagine that not killing people or killing people is a sin that we find rather easy to avoid. And if that's all the law meant, then the Pharisees and all of us, we can pat ourselves on the back, I guess, for keeping it. But as Jesus said, the law doesn't simply speak to the actual murder of another human being, but it also speaks to the heart's disposition toward another human being. It might be easy to keep from killing someone else, but what about keeping ourselves from hating them? What about keeping ourselves from slandering them, or gossiping about them, or holding anger with them in our hearts, from maintaining bitterness toward them? Well, that's a whole new ballgame, isn't it? 
all of a sudden, all of us must slink down a little bit in our seats as our minds begin to contemplate and consider how many times every one of us has violated this command. Now, we can avoid the external sin, but then do what the Pharisees do and remain in and convince ourselves that the internal sin is no big deal. And even go so far as to do what they did and create a system of loopholes and evasions and escape clauses by which to maintain our sin, to hold on to our anger and our bitterness and to justify ourselves in it, as the scribes had done with oaths, which is something that Jesus condemned them and he condemns those who do it today for. Jesus is clear about a bunch of these different things in the Sermon on the Mount. He is clear... And the weightier matters that Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for neglecting were these, in verse 23, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Justice, number one. When you hear that word, you might be tempted to think of it by today's definition, that of social justice. I'm not out there feeding the poor, therefore I'm neglecting the command of God. Everyone everywhere ought to be given the same treatment in every single area of life, and we're not doing that, therefore we're neglecting the command of God. But this is not what Jesus means. This is not what Scripture means when it uses in the Old Testament this word justice. The word justice in the Old Testament speaks to the equal application of biblical law to everyone regardless of their status in society. The equal application of the biblical law to everyone, regardless of their status in society. Leviticus 19 says it like this, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. That is the definition of justice. You don't defer to anyone based on their status. Do you see what's happening there? The law of God is already, in and of itself, perfectly just and fair. And so one's status of rich or poor should not affect or impact righteous judgments and faithful applications of God's law to their life. We don't defer to the rich because they have the financial means to pay their way out of trouble or because they might bribe you or give you some monetary kickback or some social favor. That is unjust, a violation of this command. And we don't look upon the poor with so much sympathy that they can flaunt the law, get away with it, because they can spin a good sob story. No, the law of God prescribes, as it prescribes, so justice and righteousness dictates that the judgment is rendered accordingly. But the Pharisees, they avoided such equality under the law. They avoided such righteous judgment, which is why Jesus had to tell the Jews Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Now you know, based on what Jesus has already said about the Pharisees, that they sought the best seats in the house. They loved the places of honor at the feasts. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. And so for that reason, they heavily favored the rich and the powerful because these could increase their own standing, which, according to Jesus, is a neglect of the weightier matter of the law that is justice. For us today, we must also treat others fairly in accordance with the law of God. We must also make accurate judgments between what is right and what is wrong according to the word of God and not the sad stories of the poor or the abundant resources at the disposal of the rich. None of those things uh, over, over, supersedes the word of God. 
We must apply God's word equally to all, rich, poor, those with status and some degree of power and reputation, and those who have no reputation and don't have any influence. God's word equally applied to all is what is meant by justice in the Old Testament, and Jesus said this is a crucial, weighty matter, one that had been ignored by the Pharisees. Two, mercy. God's people, meaning those who profess faith in Christ, must be ready to help, must be ready to aid, must be ready to assist those that are in trouble. We must be always those who forgive others as God has forgiven us. Mercy is so important a matter in the life of a Christian that Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And again, when the disciples... So the disciple or the Pharisees, they ignored this command. You can see it back in Matthew chapter 12 when the disciples, hungry, after a long days, long days of walking and ministering, they plucked heads of grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees saw it and they began attacking them for it. Jesus told them, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Did you hear that? The merciful do not condemn the guiltless. They do not attack and vilify those who haven't sinned against them, even if those people do things they may not appreciate, do things they may not respect, or do things they may not be in agreement with. And that's a lesson I think we all must learn. The Pharisees also revealed a lack of mercy in their weighing down and burdening Israel with their loads of extra-biblical rules. And if you've ever lifted weights, looks like some of you have, you know that there is only so much weight you can bear before you buckle under the pressure and the poundage of those weights and collapse. The Pharisees were like Job's three friends who add to the burden of the sufferer and the trouble of the sufferer rather than comforting and helping the sufferer. Three, faithfulness. The confident assurance and belief in the Lord that He both exists and is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. The faithful are those who walk in humility before the Lord, who recognize that man is nothing, that you and I are nothing. We're a mere vapor. We are like the grass of the field that is here today and gone tomorrow. We, are, we were enemies of God. We were those who exchanged His glory for creating, created things. We were those who, like Jeremiah put it, forsook the Lord, the fountain of living waters, to hew out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Commenting on this text, John Piper in his book Providence, available in our library, describes it like this. Evil one, evil number one, despise God. Evil number two, prefer dirt. This is the very essence of evil. To assess the infinitely valuable, all-satisfying God, and then turn away from Him as unworthy and unsatisfying in order to seek satisfaction by scratching in the dirt to make a broken cistern. End quote. Wow. And this is what we were. Sinners. Faithless worthless until God in Christ, while we were still sinners, died for us. 
And so out of love for the God who delivers us out of bondage to our enslavement to sin and its awful consequences, which are death and eternity in hell, the faithful, out of love for and gratitude to Him, obey His commands not to please the crowds, not to elevate ourselves, not to put on some phony show of religion. No, because our faith and our trust and our confidence is in Him. The God who heard our groaning, who hears our groaning, who saw and who sees our pitiful estate and took it upon himself to alleviate our pain and to save our souls by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These, said Christ, meaning justice and mercy and faithfulness, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Those who truly love the Lord will commit themselves to obeying His commands in both the small and the more important matters. Did you see it? These you should have done without neglecting the others. These, justice, mercy, faithfulness, without neglecting the others, tithing your dill, mint, and cumin. Scribes and Pharisees, by all means, tithe. Don't neglect that duty, but realize that there are other weightier commands of a sort that call for life change, of a sort that can only be practiced by those who do indeed love the Lord. You can't just take the commands that you like and ignore the ones that you don't like, Pharisees. You can't just lay hold of the commands that suit you and then add to them thinking that it'll make up for your turning a blind eye to the more difficult and important and weighty and crucial commands listed in Scripture. No, you must turn to the Lord. You must truly turn to Him. You must call out to Him in repentance and faith and then tithe of your dill and your mint and your cumin while also striving for justice and mercy and faithfulness. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You take such care to observe and practice the, most, the, the less important nat- matters, the gnats. You strain them out of your drink with diligent and meticulous care, and then you remain oblivious and blind to the larger sins that are at your doorstep, your hypocrisy, your merciless, judgmental, cruel, and greedy hearts. You're gulping down a camel without even knowing it. So while keeping gnats out of your wine is a good thing, don't miss the camel. Don't guzzle down the camel. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, then the call goes out to you. Strain the gnats, but don't miss the camel. If you're a follower of Christ, obey His commands because you love Him, not because you think they save you, not because you think they increase His love for you, because your obedience does neither of these things. You strive to obey the Lord in the small things and in the weightier things, waging war against the sinful passions that battle against all of your efforts, all the while remembering this truth. You've already been forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. God already loves you. He's already saved you. You are already His child. And we live this out of that reality not to secure that reality. He has already clothed you with Christ. He has already taken the penalty for your sins. Let this truth serve to increase your love for and your faith in His glorious name. But if you are unsaved this morning and you've operated under the illusion that you're a good person, that God will open wide the gates of heaven for you, because you consider yourself a first-rate human being. 
When you get right down to it, I haven't done anything tremendously bad. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't stolen anything, at least in a while. I haven't done anything near as bad as some of those other people I know. None of this is going to matter when you stand before the Lord after you've breathed your last breath on this earth. You cannot, you will not be granted access into the kingdom of heaven because you think that you're good. Because you think that you're a good person. In God's estimation, apart from Christ, you are not. You are a wicked and rebellious and depraved sinner who must turn from your sin to faith in Christ. And he is calling upon you this morning to do that very thing. And listen, here's the wonderful truth. If you do believe, the gates of heaven will be flung wide open for you and you will be brought into his family, you will become his child, and you will enjoy all of his glorious benefits from this day to eternity. So please, I urge you, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees who put on a good external show, but when all is said and done, will find themselves condemned. Instead, turn from your sin, believe in the name of Christ, and be saved. Lord, we praise you for the warnings and the roarings of your word. I thank you that they are a shock to the system in many ways. I thank you that they rattle us a little bit. I thank you that they reveal to us our tendency to think that we can win your affection by our deeds or by our externals. I pray that you would remove that from us, that you would help us to see in greater measure your excellent and wonderful grace. And I pray this morning that every single one of us here along with every single one of us in our spheres of influence outside of this gathering, would hear about, know about, appreciate, and turn to you and be recipients of that amazing grace. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.